Good morning, sharps and squares, Jews and Gentiles. You are now tuned into the sixth episode of 90 Degrees, where we're giving you the right sports betting angles. Our guest today is Sean Zarillo of the Action Network. And we go back a little bit because when I got my start freelance writing, I reached out to him because I was trying to write for the Action Network. And he eventually got through, and I wrote about baseball for them until I got picked up by thegameday.com. And Sean is one of those guys who models baseball. And I first caught his eye. Well, he caught my eye when I was handicapping Asian baseball during the pandemic, and he was one of the few people writing articles. So he's a baseball modeler. He does MMA modeling. He does a bunch of other stuff. And he also used to be a lawyer. So he decided that betting on sports and working in the industry is better than the law. So that kind of segues into our first question, which is, how did you get into betting? Um, And then how did that end up as a career? So I first started betting recreationally in high school. You know, I was always just interested in betting on football. The idea of equating teams on spreads and figuring out relative to one another, how they should perform and deciding, you know, making the decision, putting the money down of who you think is the right side is just a fascinating game for me to play. Um, I've always been most interested in baseball from the analytics uh, team building standpoint, since Moneyball was written, since I read that book, playing simulation games growing up from computer ones, like out of the park baseball to, card games like MLB showdown and baseball was always a first love and sport that I always wanted to work in to some degree. Um, went to law school, was working in the finance industry had passed my series seven and 63. This was working in a quasi legal quasi financial function and hit a point in my career where I wanted to pursue my dream path, which was working in baseball to some respect, um, went out to work for a company called sports info solutions in Pennsylvania as a baseball video scout for a summer from there, went to the winter meetings, had other opportunities lined up, but that was right around the time that PASPA was overturned. And I had started sending emails to sports betting companies as well as a long time better who now had sort of had these, knowledge of markets combined with my ability to use baseball data at a professional level. And I created my own betting model and was using it while I was there. So it just sort of became this natural progression from my education to my work experience, to being dissatisfied with what I was doing and wanting to apply those skills elsewhere and acquiring more skills along the path of doing that. Um, started out like you did as a contributor with action and over the course of five, six months doing it every day, showing that I was able to fairly consistently beat the market, if not align with the market and give out projections that were sound information, actionable information, having success with it, and then just being consistent day after day and showing up. Uh, I think over time, they just had no choice, but to hire me full time, I just beat them down with my consistency. So you know, that that grind that goes into what it takes to bet on baseball every day, I also just kind of brought to my work ethic um, since I changed careers. And it's something that is able to combine multiple passions of mine, which is betting baseball, and then just having a game that I'm able to figure out the rules of and try to beat. Yeah, baseball is a grind. I don't know how you do it every day. I don't know how I do it every day. I had the pump the brakes because it was just too much. Um, although I love doing it. Now, would you say if the PASPA wasn't overturned that you'd still be working uh, in financial services? Yeah, I might be, uh, especially with the way that, you know, I had opportunities to kind of work my way up through front offices of major league teams, you know, by first going to minor leagues and then catching on with a front office role or interning with a front office and then catching a full-time role from there. But when the pandemic hit, they had to lay off a lot of those people. And with the minor leagues not playing, they laid off a lot of those people. So my only choice, yeah, probably would have been to go back into finance and find another compliance job or some sort of job 
in the legal sector or in the finance sector that sort of aligned with my skill set. But yeah, just with the way that baseball had to shift and cut costs during the pandemic, uh, I don't know if there would be a role for me there anymore. Now, during the pandemic, uh, when you were handicapping the uh, minor baseball leagues in Asia, uh, were you getting a lot more followers from that? Uh, uh, or was the time business-wise? No, I was Because I know for me, getting, that's when I kind of blew up. You know, I was, I was getting more diverse followers, followers from Asia, followers with, uh, you know, Korean characters or Japanese characters in their Twitter handles. Like, it was very obvious that people from around the world outside of the U.S. were starting to pay attention because clearly it's bigger markets for them to bet on there. But no, I, uh, it, it was def- definitely just like an interesting experiment to see if I could take the principles of a major league baseball model and adapt it to this player data, this limited player data that I had for CPBL teams or NPB teams or KBO teams and adjust for the run scoring environment and the parks and see what I could come up with. It was just like a fun experiment to see if it would work. And it did with Taiwanese baseball. It did not with Korean baseball. I don't know if that was just randomness and variance. That was my experience too. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it was it was definitely fun. It's not something that I've fired up in a little bit since Major League Baseball came back full time. I thought last year, or I should say the beginning of this year, when MLB was looking like it was going to be a delayed season in spring training, that it was something I started thinking about. But no, I haven't fired up, fired up those models in a couple of years at this point. Now, do you think if they brought back the English language coverage for most of the games, would more people watch, especially if they put it on um, like a streaming service or regular TV in the morning for people to bet on. I think so. Just because there, there seemed to be some sort of routine about it, waking up, having your morning coffee and eggs and watching some KBO baseball on a weekday. It was just a very lovely thing to wake up to. You know, you, you know, you have a bet going into it, but you wake up in the fifth inning and get to see it play out over the final four innings from there. So yeah, I, uh, I'm not sure why they've gone away from it completely. I feel like we're in a culture, especially nowadays where live sports in terms of TV rights is everything. And I don't know if they made an offer or if they just decided it wasn't worth their time ESPN to try to pursue it and keep it on. But there's no reason why they can't have live sports on ESPN two in the morning and just try to keep a 24 hour live sports cycle. We mentioned it all the time with baseball scheduling and how much they screw it up where football season starts and they're going head to head with them on playoff games at night where they could just dominate the day slate and own day baseball and own live sports during the day. They continue to just put out these full night slates on days where they could seemingly dominate from morning to noon to night. Now we both know the answer to this, but when you do those like midweek daytime baseball articles for like a single game, how do those compare to the 7 PM articles for that same day? in terms of interest. Yeah. I I mean, obviously the night games are going to get way more clicks and usually the, the afternoon game is not as marquee of a matchup. Um, You know, I've actually mostly personally moved away from writing single game guides for any slates uh, other than playoff games and especially moved away from writing bets for day games because the shelf life is just so short. And that is, you know, part of a frustration with putting out content, for baseball and why I like to just focus on my models and my projections and giving people my projected numbers and letting them do with it what they need to, because once they have that information, they're able to make the decision. You know, the people who are following me for my numbers and my modeling, they don't need to hear my reasoning for why I like a bet. They just want to see the number and see what kind of number they can get compared to the number I'm putting out. So my most actionable information is always going to be my projections, but especially for day games when I don't really have as much time to put a video or an article out there telling you why I like something. And some people do want that reasoning and I understand it. But for me, I'm going to almost always handicap off of numbers, bet my numbers. And by and large, 99% of the time I fire a bet into the app, it's going to be because there's a number discrepancy relative to what I project and what the market is showing. Now, how are you able to get your money down since you do such a good job of beating a closing line? Yeah, I've definitely been limited at some books. Uh, I spread it around where I can. I try not to hit limit bets anywhere. You know, I may say that I'm betting a price at a certain book, but my entire allocation for a bet is not going to be there. I'm going to try to spread it around 
at books that have the same number or maybe, you know, a penny off. It is with the volume that I place price, getting the right price is absolutely crucial because I'm placing a couple thousand bets over the course of a year. And if you're taking, you know, a dollar, if you're adding a dollar onto each one of those wagers or getting a dollar less back on each one of those wagers, that's a couple thousand dollars. I'm up or down just on price fluctuation throughout the course of the year. So getting the right price is key. But as long as I'm able to get the same price at multiple books, I'll spread my action around. Ah, so your strategy is not to hit the limits, spread your action. Um, yeah, I never want to trigger that like bet approval screen. Now, some of those books just have them on for every bet that you place. And I've definitely been limited there as they've seen bets come in. But yeah, I, I try not to trigger the uh, the manual approvals. Yeah, because that's like part of it. Like Canby books, for example, they limit left and right. But, you know, from a business perspective, if they offer the best price, we're going to put them up on the article because uh, people should check that out. And that's that's what I like the app for, too, is, you know, I may be limited to a certain book and I can't get the price, but I could easily put in a bet at a different price and say, hey, this number is available here. You should go bet it there because I can't. So go beat them up for me. And that's something I enjoy doing as well. That's something that's nice about 70,000 people following you in a bet tracking app is you have an army of people who, even if you can't take advantage of a number, they can go take advantage of it for you. You can get a similar price, but why I do this is because I want other people to win with me. I'm not just trying to win and say, Hey, I'm winning. I want other people to be able to win and learn how to win themselves as well. So yeah, if people are able to get a price that I'm not, I'm certainly just as happy about it. Well, yeah, that's sort of the conundrum is that you want the people who are reading to be more successful at sports betting. Uh, but the actual sports books themselves don't want winners, but they want you to produce the content. So you bring them winners. I mean, so you bring them customers, right? So I guess kind of the thinking from the sports book perspective is that they may be a little bit less minus EV than usual, but you're getting them on the app and then using it. And then they're going to put in some of their own bets. Yeah, absolutely. More to being a winning better than just the right picks. They just want people in the door and that's going to create turnover for them eventually. My, you know, my counterpoint to it is, yes, I know they're limiting people. They're limiting me. I'm sure they're limiting people who are telling me right around the time that I'm betting, but they can't limit everybody. And at these smaller books who need to hit a higher threshold of revenue, especially in New York, where they're getting hit with a higher tax burden, they can't limit the 70,000 people who are following me in the app. They need those customers. So if they limit even like half of the people who are tailing my bets, it's going to take a huge hit out of them long-term. Maybe they just limit them on baseball and allow them to continue to bet other sports. But I've been cut off, you know, an entire books essentially limited to $25, $50 bets on things across a book where, you know, I'm not bringing in any sharp action on basketball or football. I'm mostly just telling other people or putting in some stuff recreationally, but to get limited on sports where I don't consider myself to have expertise, I find interesting. Yes, certainly. Um, and there's one sports book to rename nameless that won't let me get down on college, certain college football markets, most Canadian football markets, most European basketball markets. Yet they probably sent me about $150 worth of Yeti coolers in the mail. So they're willing to spend all that on Yeti coolers but they're not willing to let me bet 50 bucks on EuroLeague basketball where maybe I have a 4% edge. So they're not willing to lose like $2 on each bet um, and use my info to get better lines, but they'll give me free coolers. That's amazing. I mean, I don't, I don't understand the marketing strategy. I'll take their free shit. Um, hey, Yeti coolers will last you a lifetime. So it's a good investment on your part. Yeah, I mean... Uh, it's good on my part. I didn't really have to invest in it. I just took two minutes to give him my address and then it popped up in the mail. Um, now, one thing that bothers both of us, I'm assuming it bothers you as well, is in the sports content sphere, there's a lot of content out there that's crap. There's some content that's really good. And the biggest sports content, sports betting content, uh, companies are VEASAN and Action Network. And the Action Network takes a lot of heat. But, you know, in my opinion, Action Network has people like you, have, used to have Raheem Palmer, it has Colin Wilson, it has others who are sharp uh, that sports books don't want to take action from. 
why do you think the Action Network gets a bad rap from sh- some people in the Sharp community? And why are those people wrong? Well, I think we're obviously one of the biggest, but we're also one of the first. And anytime you're first anywhere, you're going to have your haters because people are going to be a bit jealous that they weren't, you know, as early first to action as you were on certain things. Listen, I mean, we certainly do have content that I don't think is good content, but it's a drop in the bucket compared to a lot of what we're trying to put out there. I think almost all of it is well-intentioned, even if it is bad content. And that I think makes me a bit more comfortable, you know, having a byline on this site is knowing the intentions of the editors and the people who are trying to put stuff out there. It's not all just about the clicks deep down. We are sports betters and we do want people to profit and we want to help them profit. Now, some of that editorial decision-making could be misguided. It could be people potentially misreading who can help betters and who can't, but by and large, I think their end goal is still to try to help people. And that doesn't mean that we don't deserve criticism at times or that we are not open to suggestion or hearing that criticism and internalizing it and making changes. So I actually always appreciate criticism. I think that there's value in hearing it and trying to take something out of it and trying to improve your process or improve what you're doing going forward. But no, I mean, I, I get it completely. Uh, but at the same time, I, I just think it's because of the size of the company, how quickly we've grown when we first started, when I first started, there were probably under 50 full-time employees. And now we've quadrupled or quintupled in the time that I've been there, the three years that I've been there. So things change quickly. Uh, You know, the identity of a company, the culture of a company can change quickly. I would say that we've been able to maintain a fairly steady course since I've been there because we've had the same CEO in place, largely the same executives in their roles as well, even as we got bought out and people have moved down to different roles, it's still largely the same voices leading the way. So I think we're in a a very good position as this industry continues to grow, obviously being one of the first, but with that, we're always going to have our haters. Yeah. I mean, you're always going to have your haters and eventually this podcast is going to have some haters too. I know I have people I don't even know messaging me saying how much they like the podcast and I really appreciate it. Um, I answer everything. Uh, so at Boogie Down Picks, if people have any commentary about any of the episodes or any suggested guests. Um, now, eventually, I'm going to get negative uh, messages, and that's fine as long as it's constructive. If the message says, Kevin Davis, you're an asshole, da-da-da-da-da, you know, I'm not going to respond because there's no point, um, even if I am an asshole. Now, when you're modeling baseball, what sort of variables do you put into the model and how do you weigh them? Yeah, so I think it fluctuates throughout the season because when the season first starts, I largely am using projections as opposed to previous season's data. Uh, You know, I'm not taking a guy's performance from last year and incorporating it directly in. I always want to be looking at forward-looking data and how they're expected to perform across multiple different projection systems and put that in there. But as the season progresses, I'm eventually going to weigh in in-season data, in-season performance data against those preseason projections, and then continue to factor in more and more as the season progresses. So now by the end of the year, now that we're in the playoffs, I'm not entirely relying on in-season data from 2022, but compared to where I was in, let's say, May, where I'm maybe using 10%, 20% weight on that end season data. Now it's closer to 80% or 90%. So it gets drastically increased throughout the course of the season. We've also though, in the past few years, had a lot of variables that are just unknown with regards to how to quantify, right? We've had the different baseballs being used, the D-Juice baseball this season, which wasn't flying anywhere in April and then was flying further during the summer months. So There's been so much to handicap year over year that is inconsistent in baseball the last few years. Now we're going to have the shift going away next year, the extra inning runner rule going away. There's been no consistency to basically rely on and go, okay, this is my model I'm comfortable with. Let's just adjust it for the months and the weather and set it and forget it and keep going. I've had to continually make so many manual adjustments to this thing over the past few years and which entire encompasses the entirety of the time that I've been at action. Um, So it's just, it's sort of this never ending thing that can be a headache at times, but is also part of the game of it. And that's where you get your edge from. So 
Yeah, uh, you know, factoring in in-season data more as I go, but I'd say really like the that's something that I am able to sort of have a process where at these markers of the season, I'm going to use X percentage. It's been the headaches of the park factors and the ball factor and the weather and the weather's impact on the ball the past few years that's really driven me mad. Yeah, it certainly seems like you have a lot of variables. And if you get one of them wrong, it screws up the whole number rather than just having a model with a handful of variables and maybe not being as precise, but not having as much potential error if you get something wrong. Now, with all the work that you put into baseball and your regular job, if let's say you weren't betting on sports at all and you didn't have a law degree, would you make more money per hour than you do now? I don't know. It's, it's so tough to beat these markets. You know, I, this year would not have been a yes. Uh, I actually struggled for a big part of July and August this year, ended up being 25 units down at one point, uh, ended up rallying back. I think I'm back in the positive now for the year, including playoffs and especially including my futures and playoff futures, but it's still going to be an unsuccessful year for me. I want to average about 10 units a month at least in terms of what I'm profiting over the course of a year and for, for a baseball season, not across all sports, but you know, I want at least 60 units of profit at the end of a baseball season, 70 units of profit. And this year at best, I'm going to be around plus 20. Now in the past, I have been there pace closer to where I want to during shortened seasons like the pandemic, but no, I'd say long-term probably not. Uh, there would be years where I might be able to, but it's such a difficult market to beat. You know, at most, I'm only beating these lines by 3 4% on average. I can beat an individual line by 8%, 7% when there's pretty drastic moves. But it's just, there's so much money in this market. It's such a giant market to bet into. And then on top of that, the way that I'm eventually getting limited over time at these different books, I don't think it would be a viable long-term solution specifically. So not being able to get the best of the number out everywhere because I'm limited at some places, et cetera, et cetera, I think you know, being able to be in a position where I can show my numbers, let people bet off those numbers. And then I can also teach them how to use numbers or, or betting in this way to try to beat the market and letting them do it recreationally. I think that is the most plus EV path for me to succeeding in this type of career in the, in the sports betting space without being completely private and keeping my action behind closed doors and partnering with other people and trying to get more money down from a public facing standpoint. I think this is the only way to do it. Yeah. I mean, like the handful of people that are actually professional betters that you meet, not the people who claim to be pros, but the actual pros. So many of them don't even use their real names. Like next week's guest is a pro better and we're not going to use his name. Uh, but he's legit. And part of it is like betters in general would kill to have three or 4% CLV like you have on baseball, especially considering how low of a, of, of a hold you have on baseball that you have, you know, usually a 1% theoretical hold on baseball. Uh, that's probably even better now. Uh, if you're based in New Jersey where we had the profit exchange, um, because being able to get uh 2% commission on winning bets uh, is a game changer, I think. Now, for MMA, that's the other big sport that you model. Mm -hmm. How did you get into MMA as a sport to bet on? And how did a light bulb go off in your head to say, wow, I have an idea for a model for it? Because frankly, like, I'm not a big MMA guy, but my friends watch it a lot. And when they put it on, I get my D-Gen on by going to your articles and putting some bets in on there uh, based on what you, uh, your edges show. And I've made a little bit doing that over the years. Uh, so it's certainly legit. So, you know, bring us through your introduction to MMA and how it became a uh, modeling experience for you. So I started watching MMA back around the time of ultimate fighter one uh, Forrest Griffin, Stefan Bonner, that tough one finale, which is still one of the best fights of all time. And went away from it for a little bit as I was trying to pursue a career in baseball, was betting more on baseball and then horses 
uh, I'd say more prominently. And it came to a point where I had all this predictive data for baseball. And I know other people obviously have their own predictive data that they use. And pretty much everybody's able to figure out, you know, if you're competent enough and given it enough time, you're able to figure out a way to get reasonably close to a projection on a baseball game that you can use for purposes of betting. But we have all that predictive data. The books know it. Websites know it. It's out there. For MMA, for horse racing, there are sports which are so much more unquantifiable. Um, now, there are people who have built brilliant horse racing models who have made billions of dollars off of it. Uh, it's a great article about handicappers in Hong Kong out there. But for MMA, which is one always been destined to be bet on because it's the only sport where they've been showing the betting odds underneath the fighters' names on their little height, weight, and betting odds since, uh, you know, that sport started. They've been showing it forever. But during the pandemic, that market certainly grew. It was the only live sport on for a period of time. I saw the interest that my colleagues were having in my articles when there was not much else to bet on. And then even once other sports came back, how many of them like continued to ask me for my picks that week or when my article would be out. So there was, there was this internal interest. There was an external interest. Um, so writing content on it every week, you know, after a while, I was like, you know, I'm handicapping these fights visually like I would handicap a horse race. Why am I not trying to quantify it in some decent way that I feel like at least I'm making some sort of inroad into what the book thinks the line should be or what the book thinks the fair odds should be. Now you could get away with that by taking your sharpest book, the book that you think is sharpest on MMA and comparing it to the other books around the markets and seeing, you know, where the odds discrepancies are and just betting those. That's fine. But I tried to take public pick data not not like betting percentages at books, but like there's websites that you can see out of thousands of picks, how many people are picking X fighter to win by decision, knockout, submission. Um, and you can do that across multiple different sites and sort of take that data, aggregate it. And once you get to on a spreadsheet, seeing consistently week after week, you know, this guy is a minus 200 favorite but 60, 70% of the public picks from multiple different websites are going against them. Not betting picks, but people just picking the fight straight up. But why is this guy a minus 200 favorite then? And it after a while, when you when, once I figured out a way how to balance that data out, what the line was against what the public dick, public dick, public pick data was, uh, you know, over time, averaging it out, figuring out a formula to average those out, I was able to create a formula where I was able to see an edge on specific fights. And then I assigned each fighter an allocated percentage by knockout submission decision. And that gives me odds that inside the distance or your totals or overs and unders that gives me all their winning method props by each of those winning methods. Um, so I can just sort of take those 12 fights, 10 to 10 to 13 fights, 14 fights, however it is on any given week, compare what I think the line should be like any other model to what the market line is. But I know it's also not like a hundred percent exact model. Like I feel not that my baseball model is a hundred percent exact, but I feel much more comfortable saying that my baseball model is this holistic thing that is giving me a very accurate line where for the fights, I think it's getting me a very good approximation, not, not as accurate, but a very good approximation. So I don't mind betting. If I say the line should be plus 300 by decision and it's plus 275, but I really like the bet. I'll sometimes make what I would quantify as a minus EV bet just because I know that my model is not a hundred percent accurate. You know, you move the decision odds a couple of percentage points and then, you know, you're at plus 275. Like it's not that huge of a discrepancy to get there when you're adjusting for a winning method between two fighters. Um, but yeah, it's, it's one of these things that I just, you know, nobody else out there publicly is really putting out, projections each week for winning percentage for what they think the fighters odds should be. And then 
giving you total projections and winning method projections. There are people who have models that are using, I'm sure, striking data and grappling data and things like that to come up with their own projections using a model, maybe an AI model. Mine is a bit more simplistic, but I also think it gives me a pretty good approximation. And it has led to a slight profit over the past few years. So it's been a fun experiment to try because I enjoy the the contrast of like all this predictive data for baseball versus almost no predictive data for fights where anything can happen uh, and trying to reconcile those two processes relative to each other. Now, what books would you say are the market makers for MMA odds where if they will move a line, the other books follow? I'd say bet online is usually one of the first to put them up. Uh, and whether the domestics want to admit that they copy the offshores or not, that's fine. But they're usually first to market with the openers, especially for future fights, title fights down the line. Um, you know, I'm sure they have odds up for John Jones versus Stipe Miocic, even though nobody knows when that fight is going to happen, if it's ever going to happen. But they usually have odds up well in advance. They had Charles Oliveira versus Islam Makachev up way earlier than anybody else which is why that line, you could see the line graph, it ballooned from minus 250 to, right, I should say, I'm talking about the Yan O'Malley fight, rather. The, the Yan line ballooned from minus 250 to minus 400 and then came back to minus 250 before fight time, and he ended up losing a close decision. Uh, if you want to determine whether that's fishy or not, you can do that on your own time. But um, yeah, I, I know bet online is usually first to market with a lot of the money lines, definitely first very often with the props each week as well. I would say domestically DraftKings and FanDuel probably have more betting options and are usually quicker to get their odds up for props and everything else. DraftKings is the official partner of the UFC. So they have their prop ups odds up pretty early. And then FanDuel usually has a pretty good, selection as well what i do like about DraftKings is they have single game parlays for fights and normally i don't think there's much value betting sgps i could be wrong in that assumption uh i just mean for other sports in general but for fights it's specifically these main event five round fights where you get huge cardio discrepancies between fighters betting a fighter to win and the over two and a half rounds when you know they have a huge cardio advantage in the second half of the fight getting all of their late finish equity with all of their decision equity roped into one bet where you usually can't find that prop option available at most books, so around three, four, five decision prop or around four or five decision prop. I think there's some creative ways with those SGPs at DraftKings to bet on the fights uh, for specific fights, even, even for some of the three round fights, it works as well. So curious to see if more books start putting up these single game parlays. Cause I think there's actually some potential profitability there. This is all reminding me of some feedback I'm getting on my podcast where somebody said, hey, I like your podcast because you just let people talk. Because I had a question about one thing and then you answer like three or four other questions and gave me some more questions. Now, you were bringing up in terms of bet online being a market maker of sorts and using public uh, betting data as part of your process for making picks. Now, you never have the public betting data for bet online. So how do you rectify situations where the public is heavily on one side, but the market maker isn't moving? So therefore, the recreational books aren't going to move either. Well, so my the way that I project out these fights is separate from knowing the betting percentages at individual books. Um, I'm balancing what the actual line is the consensus line around the market with the public pick data, non-betting data, but pick data for who they think is going to just prediction data, who they think is going to win the fight at multiple different third-party resources. So when, you know, if I'm able to see that, okay, the public pick data aligns with the betting data and they're not moving the line, it seems pretty obvious that the sharp consensus is on the other side. I don't buy as much into the the betting percentage stuff by and large. Um, but I think when you're able to balance it with another data set of this public prediction data from non-betters, or maybe some who are betters, but 
I'd say mostly non-betters. Uh, I think that's where it gets a little bit more interesting is comparing those multiple different data sets, which if they each have over a thousand predictions in them, I'd say they're statistically significant to be able to use and manipulate for purposes of trying to make a prediction. Because at the end of the day, you know, if you believe in the power of markets, you should believe in the power of four different data sets worth of predictions, which in the aggregate should be a sufficient sample. So uh, I'm mostly trying to determine where the line is going to move. Obviously, like I would for any other sport before it does. Um, and that is what my projection is trying to tell me is where I think the closing odds should be once maybe more of that other public action comes in eventually. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's difficult to get that data, especially earlier in the week, you know, the, the, the data, the betting percentage data from books, sometimes they'll put it out. Sometimes they don't, um, some books do some books don't, but I don't really care about that as much as I care about the the prediction data, the public prediction data, and then balancing that against the actual lines out there. Yeah, I mean, I ask these questions because in general, I'm a big skeptic of public bet percentage data. Uh, but you certainly brought up an angle I hadn't thought of before. Uh, so I certainly, as a better, should look into it for other sports. After all, the show is called 90 Degrees. So we're all about the right betting angles. And that's certainly one to think of. Now, in terms of pricing these derivatives, not just picking the winner of the fight, but how long it lasts, getting an alt line on how many runs it la- rounds it lasts, uh, whether the fight ends in a knockout, whether it ends in a decision. How do you take that money line and price out these props? What sort of techniques do you use? Yeah, so fighters who have, you know, especially fighters who have a larger sample of fights throughout their career, 30 plus fights, they have sort of an average, you know, distribution between decisions, knockouts, submissions. But then, you know, UFC levels by weight class, there's also averages for bantamweight versus featherweight versus heavyweight. And the heavier fighters finish fights more frequently than the lighter weight fighters, which is intuitive considering the power discrepancy. Uh, with that, male-female fights also finish with a similar discrepancy because there's more men's weight divisions at higher weight classes. But the the 125 to 145-pound men finish fights at a similar rate to the 125 to 145-pound women. So you can average out your prediction for the fight. Well, so I should say, you know, as part of that prediction data, I'm also getting predictions on how those fights should end, knockout submission decisions. So I'm able to factor that in for each fighter. And then I just make slight adjustments, not only relative to what I think, that's where the manual modeling comes into a degree, but also to what the average odds are out there for uh, that particular prop. So say I'm 15% off, you know, on one particular prop, and it's, it's very clear that my assessment is, you know, overboard in one area, uh, I can easily correct that by 5%, 10%. And I'm still going to show an edge there, but at least it's not drastic. And I have assigned some of the probability at least somewhere else. So there is some manual tinkering that goes into it. Cause it's again, not as refined of a process as the MLB model is definitely it is a bit more manual in terms of how I tinker, especially with the derivative markets. But uh, you know, once you have your knockout and submission percentages on each side, you know how often that fight is expected and inside the distance. And then you know how often on general fights end inside of the first round and a half, inside the first two and a half rounds, inside the final two and a half minutes of the third round. So you can sort of apply those averages out. You could adjust it for cardio or say you have a fight between one guy who never finishes and one guy who only finishes, but all of his finishes in a round one, you can weigh the odds to that one and a half, that under one and a half a little bit more heavily, his round one prop a little bit more heavily. That's like the next step in the evolution of how I project these out is I want to assign probabilities, not just for knockout submission decision, but also for each individual round. And then I can start delving into round props. There's some round one props that are sometimes viable for fighters. And then you bet against them live after the first round. There's some fighters who I said, when they have a big cardio advantage, you expect them to win round two and round three at increasingly bigger percentages so you want to have a nice live price target on them after the first round, but you also may look to play their round two or round three finish props. So you may get a good value number there 
if the fighter they're going against has no cardio whatsoever. So cardio is king when betting MMA. That is something I look at in every fight. Probably the easiest thing to analyze too, just seeing the pace that fighters keep up from the first round relative to the third round. But yeah, it's uh, there's definitely a lot of manual tinkering with that to be done. But I do have a data set that I'm working off of as well. This is all incredible stuff, much of which I'd never thought of before. Now, do you ever have a situation where the market maker bet online or the book in general will move the money line on a fight, but they won't move the props as much as they should that are correlated with that money line? Yeah, that happens constantly, uh, especially closer to fight time. Um, you know, as as the as the money line odds balloon up on an underdog, sometimes their props won't move at all. And it becomes a situation of, you know, I was looking to bet this decision prop at a better number. I was money lines floating up. I'm just going to bet the money line now. Um, yeah, I'd say, I'd say it's, it definitely happens. Um, sometimes you can catch it in the middle of the week. If there's been a movement recently and the book just didn't move it yet. I would imagine most of them have them automated, but clearly some of them don't to adjust in concert with everything else. But would say definitely the day of the fight, as you get closer to the fight, if you use bestfightodds.com, bestfightodds.io, and you see across the board a market ticking up or ticking down on one fighter, and then you click into the odds, I would imagine you're going to find some books who didn't adjust their prop odds when the money lines did adjust. And and similarly with the um, the totals, you know, if the the fighter who's more heavily favored is also more likely to win inside the distance and they become even more heavily favored, that under should be moving down as well. And if it's not, that's a different way that you could take advantage of betting on the derivative. Now, if someone's a better who isn't profiled as a whale and isn't profiled as a sharp, but has some betting history, what are the typical limits for these props? You know, from opening to um, fight time. Yeah, I'd say I'd open. It's probably closer to a hundred dollars um, for these prop bets at close. Uh, you could probably get a few thousand dollars down online, and then I'm not sure what circle will take in person. I know they pride themselves as being one of the leaders in MMA handicapping. I'm just not in Vegas, so it's not you know I'm not seeing when their lines go up, etc. But I know Nick Likas does a really good job for them. I would assume they're one of the market leaders as well in terms of getting odds out there, setting lines, um, and having people copy off of them as well. Uh, so, yeah, I would imagine over the counter, they probably take a lot more on props, Circa does. I don't know if everybody does. I would assume not. But the difference between like open on props around $100 to close around a few thousand dollars at most. So they're, they're not massive markets compared to money lines or totals where they're going to have much higher limits. But I also think it's probably where you're going to find bigger edges betting into. Mm. And, you know, if someone's like a lower dollar bet better and they want to kind of chase the steam in MMA by betting props, is that a particularly potentially a, a winning angle? If they Chasing can figure the out the right steam, correlations. I've found that the steam in MMA... Now, I have nothing to prove this. It's something that I would love to go back and experiment. Um, I've generally found that the steam in MMA, especially like the big steam right before fight time, is not that predictive for the winner. And that chasing steam would largely be a unprofitable strategy, if not a losing strategy. Um, I don't know what it is about the nature of fights. And this is, this is like part of what I love about it is the unpre- unpredictability. So much of it is still up to the judges if it goes all three rounds. Um, if you're going to be betting big favorites, you're almost better off betting their finish props, probably long-term. Because if they are a big favorite, they need to justify that by winning inside the distance, not leaving it up to the three judges, even if they dominate the fight for three rounds. But the the variance in judging especially as you saw this last weekend with the Yano O'Malley fight where, I mean, it was a close fight, but uh, there was an argument that Jan won all three rounds, if not two of the three. And there's been bigger robberies in the past, I would say on, you know, fight night cards at the apex that nobody paid attention to, but this was on a pay-per-view and it was a big deal. 
Um, but with the variance in judging, that adds a further layer of unpredictability on top of just two people swinging at each other in a cage, hoping that one knocks the other out or submits the other. There's just that this like bizarre human element that we don't have in any other sport where we don't know the score. The judges seemingly don't know the score. They don't know how to score. Um, so that complete randomness. I know there's a lot of people who have a ton of success just betting split decision props. They just, they find like their four or five fights on every card that they think are going to go to a split decision. And you can usually get the fight to go to a split decision at like five to one, eight to one, depending on the odds for the fight. And then you can usually get either fighter by split at like 20 to one, 30 to one. So if you bet a few of those on each card and you hit on one out of every three cards, you're still turning a profit. Wow. That sounds incredible. They also bet on point deductions too. They bet on uh, fighters get deducted a point, which have some pretty big, juicy odds as well. So listen, as you're seeing more markets out, open up for this, I know uh, BetMGM at one point, I don't know if they still do it, but you can bet exact winning method. So you can bet uh, like knockout via head kick or like submission via armbar and get like 50 to one on all of those. Um, yeah, just as more books open up these markets as MMA takes a bigger hold, of the betting industry overall, I think you're going to see some pretty interesting props that you're going to be able to play. You can already see it on price picks with, uh, you know, betting over under on takedowns or total strikes or things like that. Some of those type of props are already leaking into prop bets that you can make at legal domestic books as well. So now closing line value is like the big buzz among the sharp bettors that, you know, some will even go as far as say, particularly spanky that, if you're not being the closing line as a better, you aren't shit. Now, they always bring up some exceptions to this, which are um, lower limit markets or more unusual markets. What value do you think closing line value plays in MMA for money lines and for props? I don't think it plays as much of a role in determining my opinion of how my bet is going to do before the fight starts as like a 2% move in an MMA market on a prop against me is not going to scare me as much as a 2% move against me in an MLB game. Yeah. Um, so I would agree with that exception about these smaller markets, it not mattering as much because all it might take, especially when you've, Props and at one book, you know, if you're limited to a thousand bucks there, all it takes is one person putting down a thousand bucks against you and it might be enough to move that prop. So, um, no, I, I, I would agree with that assessment that, uh, it doesn't matter as much in a smaller market like MMA in MLB. It's almost everything for me. Like it's really easy to say, look at the result of a game and say, Oh, like, you know, I had a two nothing lead in the fifth inning. They blew it in the bottom of the fifth or, oh, this bullpen came in and melted down. Yeah. Like that's a bad beat, whatever, you know, I had 90% probability to hit this total and it didn't hit. It's very easy to quantify those beats, but there's also going to be bias in it as well. There's no bias in the percent that I beat the closing line by. That just is fact. I beat it by 3%. I beat it by 4%. I've missed on one bet that I've made this entire postseason. I, I think I've uh, I've placed over 40 or 50 bets this postseason. I don't have the exact number in front of me, but I've I've had a line move against me one time, and it was on a total. Uh, I believe it was the – might have been Yankees-Guardians game five. Whatever it was, I bet a six and a half at like uh, minus 110, and it moved to minus 120. It wasn't a drastic move, but it it stood out because it was the only only bet that moved against me the entire postseason, and it lost pretty quickly, actually, if I remember. Um, this was an under? Yeah, I had an under in one of the Yankees-Guardians games that it, it moved it's against me. It's not like slightly. it moved to seven. Yeah, I think so. Um, it only moved 10 cents rather than the seven. So, you know, like that's going to catch my eye, but we always remember our failures over our victories kind of. So even like the fact that, you know, I beat the line on every other single move this postseason, I beat some of them by as much as 6%, 7% on totals uh, that opened way too high. Um, but that, that one that moved against me, like is the one that sticks out of my mind, right? It's not the other 
50 that moved my way. It's the one that I got wrong that moved against me. So whether that's just like an ego thing or whether that's about wanting to beat the market or whether that is like truly what I value as something to measure myself against how I'm doing, it's probably a little bit of both, but I think it is extremely important, especially in the bigger markets. Yeah. I like how you mentioned how you always think of when you were wrong rather than when you were right. Uh, Because my dad, for example, is a four-time Jeopardy champion. He lost on the fifth time. This was before they had double Jeopardy, and five times was the max. And he'll always tell us about the answers he got wrong, including there was one question on a a daily double uh, for horse racing. And my dad likes going to the track. That's actually uh, one of his first dates with my mom um, was at the racetrack, and my uncle was there, my uncle, the famous horse uh, player who's going to be on a podcast eventually. So stay tuned for that. Uh, so he's a big horse racing guy and he got a, a horse racing question wrong on jeopardy and he'll never live that down in his mind, even though he's top 100 all time in jeopardy winnings before they went to double jeopardy. That's incredible. So it's like one of those things where you put so much work into something that the one time you get something wrong, you freak out. Um, but that's, I guess the price of perfection. Yeah, and if you're, you know, if you're consistently missing in MMA, yeah, then I'd worry. But missing on one bet, two bets, it's not going to worry me nearly as much as missing one or two bets on an MLB card in terms yeah. of closing line value. Yeah, and I know that when my friends have MMA and I want something to bet on, I look at your articles, I'm not going to go calling you up and saying, hey, Sean, you screwed up. I lost my life savings betting on a submission. Uh, there's a, there's always a personal responsibility aspect of sports betting. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's largely what I, I try to teach people how to make smarter decisions, but ultimately you do have to make the decision, put the money down, enter the bet in. So at the end of the day, all I can do is be a guide and help you try to make smarter decisions. I can't make the decision for you. All right. So that's a wrap for today's episode. Sean, do you have any last words? Uh, go Phillies riding a Phillies 40 to one ticket for the world series. So hoping Ooh. that cashes, uh, but no, uh, you know, just stay in the grind. It was, uh, it was a very rough regular season for me in baseball. Uh, but I knew most of it was just awful variance and it would be over eventually. And the way it shifted at the end of September into October is a relief, but it's also a reminder. Just, just keep your nose in the grind and things will, tilt your way eventually as long as you have a sound process so always try to make yourself better never assume you're the smartest person in the room because you're not but definitely just keep grinding all right everybody that's sean zarillo of the action network big round of applause Bangers, bangers, bomb, boogie down, bangers, bangers.